0: Hey, Rich. Paul. We're back here at Track Changes, the podcast that tries to explain technology technology. and culture. Yeah, those two things. Those are great. And how they weave into one another. I'm Paul Ford. This is my business partner. Rich Ziotti. We co-founded Postlight. It's a great agency in New York City that builds beautiful technology things like uh, APIs and platforms, if you know what those are. And apps. Oh, you know that's actually a good thing to bring up because we have a premier and very interesting app developer focused on iOS here in the podcast studio with us today. Oh, her name is Natalie. Prer.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Okay, how do you pronounce your last name, Natalie?
1: Natalie Podrazik.
0: Yeah, I had I thought it was Podrazik for years. You
1: lose the confidence when you see the Z and the K.
0: Is that what happens? Mm. Mm-hmm. Hey, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thanks. Welcome. Yeah. So give us the basics. You live in New York City.
1: I live in Brooklyn, Greenpoint.
0: Do you work in Brooklyn or Greenpoint?
1: I work in Soho.
0: Uh, what train do you take?
1: I take the G to the L to the NR. Okay. Okay. That actually sounds really complicated. Sometimes I'll take the B62 to the MJ. Sometimes I will bike to the MJ, but I take a variety of routes. I have a lot of time on my hands.
0: What, is the, what, what gets you to choose between one and the other?
1: The weather, mostly.
0: Okay, nice day. Did you bike today?
1: I didn't bike today, no. But oh, I bike sometimes. So it's we pretty... do a
0: shout out to the uh, New York transit system. Ah, oh, it's good. It's, it's good. <sighs> Let me ask you a question. Do you use bus time?
1: Yeah, I do. I text buses.
0: Okay, so this is for people who don't know. Bus time is a giant API. It's like a service you can use to find out when the bus is coming. I'm a heavy-duty express bus user. Mm. Hardcore. Yeah, it's really good because it's it's like two blocks to my house to yeah. two blocks to my company, and it's 30 minutes. It's wow. wonderful. It's a little, little more expensive, but it's worth it. Anyway, it's interesting that there are APIs for things like transit. Well, they killed it with bus. There's a great
2: – I think it's the Atlantic that wrote up the backstory of how bus time came to be. They're way ahead of the trains. The buses are way ahead of the trains in terms yeah. of <laughs> –
1: they're above ground. Well,
2: I don't think that was the only barrier to solving that.
0: So, what you do when you're when you're confused about when your bus is going to come, you can look at bustime.mta.info. That's bustime.mta.info, and you can uh, see when buses are coming.
1: Or you can text a bot.
0: Now, this is the thing. I've never
1: texted. I text the bot. Of course. There's
0: lots of ways to use this. The
1: bot replies right away and he's always honest. Yeah. Even if the bus is four stops away and that says, you know, seven minutes, you got to round up.
0: It's it's pretty good, right? It gets you within about a minute. Like you got to get there. Also, New York is a lonely place. And sometimes on a
2: Saturday night, you just want to talk to someone. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: you just ask. Say, hey. When's the B41 coming?
0: I'm going to make a confession, but I'm going to ask you guys first. Have you ever looked at bus time when you're not going to take a bus? Negative. What about you?
2: Uh, I looked
0: at the apps, yes. Yes. Yeah. I was just impressed by the whole thing. I have a big window in my house, and I look out, and I see the buses go back and forth. I'll occasionally just sort of check out bus time just to see what the status of the B68 Uh, route is. Like Carly Simons playing in the background? A little bit of that. And then there's also an element of, like, there's a fantasy element, I think, especially since I had the kids, that... I could just go downstairs, get on the B-68 in three to five minutes and go to Coney Island, smoke a cigarette, drink a beer, look at the, look at the ocean. But um, not really going to happen because I have two twins sitting in the other room who right. can't really tolerate me being away for eight hours. Right. But this podcast isn't about bus time. No, but it is about how people do their job. And I've known Natalie on and off for years, and, and she's a very serious iOS developer.
1: Yes. When we worked on a project together, I was not an iOS developer.
0: What got you into iOS?
1: It was a pretty straightforward transition. I was a back-end developer working for uh, media companies as a part of Six Apart, the blogging juggernaut, I think people used to use the phrase. Um, Well, we worked on CMS technologies for so long, and these clients relied on us for expert opinions for so long that the newsstand in iOS cropped up. And they said, hey, hey put us in there and so i oh, so apple did, did something yeah like you
0: were you had an iphone people had iphones and apple's like hey we're gonna have news now too exactly when was that i don't even remember anymore it's a few
1: 2010, years after 2011.
0: Yeah. okay so we're talking five six years ago yes and you had been programming Perl, python
1: okay. uh, writing a lot of Migration scripts and CMS extensions for these media uh, clients.
0: Sort of, so big web things, and so then newsstand comes down.
1: So the newsstand comes down. How
0: how did you learn?
1: How did I learn iOS development? Yeah. Well, my college program was in C, Mm -hmm. um, so I was familiar with the. Where'd you go to school? I went to UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Sure. And since I had a C background, it was not as horrifying, I think, as it is for a lot of people, but. The basics were not there. I, I didn't grow up using an Apple computer. I didn't have this history and this respect for this guy named Steve Jobs. My first Apple computer was at my first job in New York in, in 2007, and I didn't know how to use it, so I did everything by the Unix terminal. Oh, I think. so you
0: started, like, in OS X. Okay.
1: And now I'm an iOS developer. I look back, and then I just think, like, I have such a puppy. It's really great.
0: So, people who are listening may not know what C is. C is like a very low-level programming language. It's not like the lowest level. It's not like you're flipping switches, but you are pretty aware of how the computer is working when you use C. You're, you're thinking about things like how the memory is managed and the kind of the actual f- structure of the computer. Whereas something like Perl or Python, you get to forget a lot of that. Safe
2: to say, it's not as convenient or accessible as the sort of the fr- let's call them friendlier programming languages like Python and and the like.
1: Sure. I mean, because you have to create and manage your own memory in iOS development, in Objective-C anyway. It's gotten better over the years with a couple uh, additions to to language, but it's a low-level thing. It's a powerful thing.
0: So you're getting into it actually at that moment. Like, you're still thinking about the physical aspects of the computer, right? Like, you're thinking about memory management.
1: Which I had never thought about before in a practical way. As a backend developer, you just... You know, develop dummy tests to prove certain conditions, and it's a very like humanless. Not thoughtless because obviously backend developers are really brilliant people, but uh, Wonder, um,
2: wonderful people, the okay. best,
1: wonderful. The but best. I would say certainly not as challenging as what I've been facing in I- as an iOS developer.
0: My assumption there is that like a backend process tends to be very very quick for the most part. You're you're pulling something out of a, a data store, you're doing something to it, you're going to make a web page or put it back, and so you might do that a thousand times a second. And if there's a problem, you find out really fast because it's doing it over and over. And you kind of fix it, and it, it you can kind of kludge it together pretty quickly, and you can avoid really bad failure states. So iOS was different.
1: Yeah, iOS is different in that all of those systems-related challenges are minimized into one system, which is your app, and everything that your user of your app experiences so you, you kind of own the whole stack.
0: So there's all sorts of stuff happening with memory and with the pixels on the screen. Exactly. Right. Because I remember I worked on a tablet app early days when the iPad first came out. And the things that were breaking on it, it would break like a Commodore 64 used to break in the 80s. Like the screen would just get filled with stripes mm. and stuff would kind of melt down in an old school way that I hadn't seen. Like computers don't usually crash that way anymore. Mm-hmm. So what what is happening when something like that breaks? Do you know?
1: Well, on an older iPad, probably just ran out of memory and, the uh, OS oh, should have killed the app at that point, but, I, you know, something that bad. And...
0: Something weird is ha- like it's out of memory, which normally just isn't a problem day to day.
1: So this is the part that was hardest to learn as an iOS developer. I had to kind of listen to the symptoms and read between the lines of how frustrated the user was about the bug report to be able to actually understand what's going on. I mean, there isn't a way to debug like there is on a back-end web server. You can just read the logs.
0: Right, and it's like, hey, couldn't, you know, had problem-serving web page, couldn't find data, couldn't connect to whatever. Exactly.
1: All these errors are standardized Uh, in iOS. it's, It's kind of like a feeling, like something doesn't feel good right now. Is that a bug or is that intentional?
0: So that situation arises. What is your process to even, like, start picking that apart? What do you do?
1: I ask them the typical bug reporting questions. What did you expect to happen? What actually happened? But mostly I just try to listen to their tone of how frustrated they are because sometimes they just want to be heard and then they just want to reply that someone is listening and actively improving their product as a result.
2: So this is interesting. This isn't just the thing blew up. You're sort of blurring into experience design. and
1: Yeah. I mean, if something blows up, I can usually reproduce something very, really, you know, blatantly
2: explosive that happened
0: yes right i tried to upload a 10 megabyte picture and it's nothing happened yeah we
1: we found we traced that in the back end the breadcrumbs are there
0: you're talking about
2: i thought i wanted it to do this when they drag up and release but it it sort of looks strange and feels weird let's see what people say
1: yes so this whole class of user experience challenges i had never faced as a back-end developer and that was the Right. number one toughest thing to learn as an iOS developer.
0: So suddenly you have to be aware of what little fingers are doing that you've never seen and will never see.
1: Exactly. I was used to responding to error codes right? Or, you know, out-of-memory errors. Uh, but, but this is just kind of a person complaining about their feelings in the app. It's like a psychological thing. I have to actually listen and try to think hard about what they're saying.
0: That's amazing. So and it's there, not just memory management. It's feeling management. It's true. Yeah. So it's trying um, to create better memories and managing that.
1: Yeah. So kind of as my as my skills have evolved in the language itself and in the frameworks themselves and as I've watched more and more WDC videos over the years and made more apps. So wait,
0: um, WWDC is?
1: Worldwide Developer Conference. That's like
0: the big Apple event that they yes. do. Okay, for developers. Up, do you ever go?
1: I've gone twice.
0: What's it like?
1: Rad. It's so rad. It is so rad. Uh, you know, it's like the first week of school and everybody's wearing their backpacks and they're so excited about all the new technologies and then they go downstairs in the basement and all the Apple developers are there and you can just ask them questions, almost any kind of questions, and they're there. And they're just waiting for you to ask the questions. And you can tell they only come out of their offices really one week a year to do this kind of thing. And they're so excited to talk to you. And you are so excited to talk to them. And the Internet is really fast. It's so fun. It's great.
0: So this is like the flip side of the (laughs) you sitting in a room trying to figure out what happened to someone when they touched the screen and like Googling around and like puzzling it through. Instead, you get to just go be in the place where all the people who have all the answers are.
1: Yes. It's how do I describe this? You think that you have the dumbest question on earth and you bring it to an Apple engineer and they just give you this look like, I've been waiting for you to ask that question. And you just have this validation and like the Apple gods shine on you and you hear a it chorus. It's wonderful. How, it's
0: many, like how many people are there?
1: 3,000, a couple thousand. Okay, so
0: thousands of people. Yeah. And you're talking to people who literally are like they're writing the code for apple they're writing the libraries and tools that, you that you're negotiating to, with yeah. Yeah, yeah
1: it's an amazing program because their job is to help you do your job so you get to ask them anything it's it's a cooperative codependent except it's
2: one week a year it's it's one, it's one week so if only so w, on co- like is there any like hey like, go. listen dude here's my email address You're going to run into some other stuff. They're not allowed to do that, right? Not really. Right. So the door closes. So they're not that cooperative, in fact. They're cooperative one week a year. It's like North Korea. What is it like
1: when WWDC... Swift is more cooperative. Since it's been open source, they have a pretty good community. Oh, interesting. They have a pretty virtual
0: site. We should talk about what Swift is. So when you moved over to iOS, you were programming in a language called Objective-C. That's true. Which is a lot like C, hence the name. Super set of C. Right. So it added object-oriented programming, which we're going to just say is out of the scope of this podcast. But like, it added object-oriented programming to C. And then about two years, three years ago, Apple released a new language called Swift. Mm Mm-hmm. What's the difference between Objective C and Swift? Oh my gosh! That's a pretty huge difference, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, it's an incredible. That's kind of an unfair question. I'm sorry. So
1: the language itself is more readable. It requires less characters per line to achieve the same effect. And
0: Objective C had been around since like '84 and 1984, and then like at, or like around there. And it added a lot of some evolved from other
1: languages of that time. It actually
0: came like it got acquired by Next, which was Steve Jobs' company that he created after Apple, and then got brought back in as part of OS X. So it had a lot of stuff attached to it.
1: Yeah. So what Swift brought was you know that strong typing, um, easier to read code, and a lot of new additions to the language that people working in Objective C as a career have been yearning for for years. Okay. Like easier extensions. Like cleaner error handling, like you know, structifying lots of strange things.
0: I'm not even going to try to explain what those things are, but but like Swift is different and way more modern in a lot of ways mm-hmm. than Objective C. Do you find? Are you using it more and more?
1: I'm writing it in my spare time. Okay, so it's you're... my preferred fun language.
0: It's fun. Yeah. Okay, so but brought... the day job doesn't um, want. It's you a to mix. Use.
1: We're we're starting to roll it in. Um, my day job. I work at a place called Byte on an app called Peach.
0: Byte, B-Y-T. That's correct. Where's that?
1: It's in Soho. That's
0: the place in Soho where you take all the transit? Yeah. Okay. How many people work there?
1: Ten. Mm,
0: okay, so it's a small company. It's small,
1: yeah. It's definitely small. What does Byte do? Byte makes creative apps for creative people. Byte was the name of our first app. Uh, it came out last fall, and it was a creative app for uh, folks that wanted to make psychedelic layers of, of media. It, uh, the inspiration was uh, Super Mario Paint. So it was kind of just a fun uh, maker kind of app. You should check it out.
0: And you're sort of like painting with objects. Like The the things I've seen coming out of Byte are like awesome skeletons, very psychedelic. Yes. Skulls.
1: Layer the GIFs. Animate the GIFs. You know, compose your own music. Loop a video all together at once.
0: What struck me about it was like it was really of the medium. Like it wasn't pretending to. Like Instagram pretends to be an old camera. Like Byte pretends to be on a Portable supercomputer that can do No, this is no. Weird for stuff. iOS.
1: Absolutely, for iOS.
0: And available today. Yeah. And free. Absolutely. And then AfterBite, you launched... Peach. Which is a kind of social network.
1: Peach is a social network for fast sharing with your friends. Its most notable feature is its magic words, which is uh, it matches what you're typing, kind of like a Slack keyword, and then it'll offer a little quick service for you, like GIF lookup, your weather, your location, how much battery you have left. Neat.
0: Everyone got really excited about Peach and had an enormous number of opinions about it. Oh, boy. What was it like to be on the receiving end of so many opinions?
1: It was so exciting, A, uh, to work on an app that exploded like that. B, we launched it as a beta. So it was a really exciting time for our backend team as well. They did an amazing (laughs) job. Um, And we didn't formally do any press around it. So a lot of the stories and the kind of the message out there was unpredictable.
0: I mean, people seem to just sort of project their own anxieties about everything onto things like Peach.
1: Yeah, but we did what we did best, which was release a beta of new features and bug fixes every day during that cycle. We just kept shipping new versions and new improvements.
0: Peach is still running. I, is, yeah. I log in, I see friends updating on it mm-hmm. pretty regularly, especially Corey Sika. He is a serious peacher. Oh,
1: my gosh. He's he's a big part of Night Peach, too.
0: Night Peach. Mm-hmm. What is Night Peach?
1: It's when they post at night, I guess.
0: Okay, that's that makes sense. That's a good. Um, great I filter. also <laughs> I also
1: learned the importance of of um, bios in social media for younger people. We we had to actually disable our friend to friend feature for a variety of reasons, but it was through that kind of two to three degrees of of friends that I found out that teenagers really need to, they need bios. They require bios, and a, a bio is just a tweet length string that describe themselves in emoji and pronouns.
0: But without that, teenagers cannot survive.
1: They require no. yes.
0: Okay, Peach is still running, but it seems like you're onto something new. Mm-hmm. What are you up to now?
1: I have some side things that I'm doing, and uh, the team is working on some new things. Um, on the side, I'm working on this app that was inspired by this woman who is learning Swift. Incidentally, I was like volunteering at a girl development course for these women who were learning Swift after their day jobs, which is so inspirational. A and B, I was just there to kind of help, you know, as a TA. And she said, "I, just, I want to and learn how should, to." We should
0: we should tell people what Girl Develop it is.
1: Oh yeah, it is a nonprofit dedicated to helping women learn how to code as a second career.
0: We we've had them um, at our offices. They've used our space to teach. They're great. They had a lot of seltzer water, just a huge amount of. What is it, Lacroix?
1: Ladies love Lacroix.
0: I guess they do. Mm-hmm. I, like I came in, and the fridge was. Is that comp- true? It was the fridge was, or, comp- or is yes. that just a line? No, I've heard. Preferably
1: pamplemousse, but that's just me.
0: Yeah, I mean, people really, really oh. like LaCroix. And I came in and we had this glass fridge and it was just filled with LaCroix. And I'm like, what's up? And they're like, that's for girl development. I was like, oh, okay.
1: I, they get thirsty? I don't know.
0: I respect it. I, I mean, people should have the beverage that they need.
1: Our particular event was held at blue apron and they have beautiful offices. Do they? Wow, so much uh, lacroix. So yeah. much.
0: Yeah, <laughs> see I remember, blue apron has to hook you up with nice stuff. Like it's got to be. I
1: mean I walked I mean, in the and kitchen I kitchen
0: has to be the kitchen of yeah. blue apron. Blue there apron. is a
1: kitchen. Yeah. There was a like a communal kitchen and I expected a man wearing an apron, you know, just kind of handing out like radishes, but there was none such. So. No. <sighs> um I digress. So the the app inspiration came from this woman who wanted to learn how to make an iOS app because She had an older phone, 4S, and she was running iOS 8. She was afraid to upgrade because she was so low on memory. Uh, She takes a lot of pictures, and she takes a lot of screenshots in particular. And so she said, I want to be able to organize my screenshot according to their purpose. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I look at her photos, and she has all of these lock screen screenshots of Spotify, of Apple Music, of YouTube, of just things that she's going to look up later. So, right, because
0: there's stuff always happening on your phone and you're like, oh, I want to I wanna bookmark this. And there's actually no way to bookmark an event inside of an app for the most part. Exactly. Like you can, if Spotify is open and you're in it and you're like right there at that moment and you're past the lock screen, you can save a song and add it to a, a playlist. But you're often not in that state if you're casually living your life instead of fooling around with your phone all the exactly. time. Exactly. So take a screenshot and then you have a record.
1: Yeah, so this woman had many, many screenshots of her own lock screen.
0: Is many, many dozens, hundreds, thousands?
1: Probably hundreds. Hundreds, okay. Of songs she's meaning to look up, and that's just manual stuff. And I thought, well, I'm going to make an app to do that Okay. for her. So my app uses just some... Basic uh, text recognition to understand if your lock screen is on and if it's a Spotify, if it's a, a music track listing, and then it looks up the API and builds a playlist out of it.
0: So you load in all these images. Mm-hmm. How do you do text recognition? What makes that possible?
1: Oh, there's a there's an open source uh, library called Tesseract that helps me do it. I I'm not going to do. That.
0: Well, no, nobody is. That's a brilliant
1: person. (laughs) Solved
0: that problem. So you're building this app in Swift. Mm -hmm. You go and you download the Tesseract library somewhere.
1: Yeah, it already has a data set against the English language. So I can just assume I'm going to cross my fingers and it's going to do the best it can against uh, music track listings and artists.
0: And that comes with documentation that tells you, like, hey, give us this picture and we'll give you words back?
1: Yes. And and there are some caveats to that, too. It says, you know, when you give us a picture that's the exact size and frame and, uh, you know, when it's black and white only, we have a higher likelihood of predicting the text for it. And if you, you know, if you give us a little more time, we'll give you a little bit of better quality.
0: So are there are all these rules and situations where using Tesseract will give you different kinds of results. That's like, you, you can get really crappy text output if you just throw it a bunch of slop that's in all sorts of colors, and you can get really good text output if you give it black and white. Exactly. So, and you can just get this thing totally for free. This is, yeah. a, this is an open source tool. It is. Okay. So this is, you have, you have the language, which is Swift. Mm-hmm. You have like the framework and the tools from Apple, which are like, the, it's the Xcode SDK kind of stuff.
1: Yes. And a part of that is a lot of image manipulation, low-level stuff.
0: Oh, so Apple gives you that kind of for free out of the box. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: Which is, it's the best. Um best in class. So what I can get is from a given photo from a user's camera roll, I can first assert that it's the right dimensions of the phone, okay because if it's not the right dimensions, it's not a screenshot.
0: Uh, and then
1: I can look for this magical key indicator, which is the status bar it has a time in it, okay. so if I look in a certain place in that image and it has something that looks like a timestamp, I'm like pretty confident a screenshot
0: okay.
2: and
1: then from there, every uh, musical artist track and Album listing is in the same place, okay. Relative to the frame, so I so I know where to get the text from.
0: Oh, I see. So you're like, okay, this is a screenshot. I can sort of use coordinates to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Then I can figure out who the artist and the track are,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then how do you turn the artist and the track into a song I could listen to?
1: I use the Spotify API and so search against it.
0: You go to Spotify and you go, hey, I have exactly this much information in convenient alphanumeric form.
1: Yeah, best case. Right. There are a lot of cases in a lot of my screenshots where it just picked up some text from some other app that was using the status bar actively. And so I have to build some more logic into my app to make sure that the user who's looking at these things that I think are Spotify tracks is actually confirming or denying that they are.
0: So the computer could think that the song is called Schmerglear Exactly. Yeah, okay. It could be like Complete a notification. Nonsense. Yeah. It could be a, yeah, it could be a notification. Yeah. Okay. Or it, it could be, be a
1: legitimate st- song, but it's just not on Spotify
0: from something else.
1: Yeah. Okay. Taylor Swift or something.
0: Right, right. Or or Prince. Prince is not on Spotify.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Sorry, I just brought everyone I brought everybody down by mentioning Prince. I'm sorry.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So this is really interesting. So there's all this latent stuff floating around in screenshot form. Yeah. And you're taking that and turning it into musical playlists.
1: Yeah. To me, it's about workflow. I think what I wanted to solve for this woman who had this problem was that she wanted to reduce the size taken up on her phone. And I just wanted to get like the rawest data from this large pool of, of photos just and then just like kind of slim it down and just say, deliver it in a platter for her and say, here you go. Here's the result.
0: What would you say the difference is between the size, like in megabytes, of her collection of images versus what you are doing?
1: I don't know. Like 10,000 to one. I don't, I don't know.
0: Right. So you're, you are shrinking down. The 10, data 10, that 10 she wants is yeah. actually thousands of times smaller mm-hmm. than the screenshot data.
1: But it, it but it took so much less effort than unlocking her phone, pressing a button to add to a list, and then maybe like creating a new list out of
0: it. See, I think people, Every time. I think people don't realize that like your phone doesn't know what it's doing all the time, and I don't know why. I don't know where that comes from. Like, there's no way for you as a programmer to go. Actually, let's put a big red button right here, and when anybody hits that red button, it'll it'll save what the phone is doing. It'll save the song they're listening well, I, to. I think
2: you're touching on the sort of interface constraints and actually programmatic constraints that iOS imposes. I mean, this is sort of one of Apple's hallmarks, right? Which is, we're going to tell you exactly where the guardrails are as to what you can or can't do. I don't know exactly the ins and outs of Android, but I'm guessing you can do just about anything if you're willing to go there. Sure. And you could put that button... There is a world. It's not technical, the limitation. It's policy, more so, than technical. Because there could be... a i mean... There was a day when it was unheard of to replace your keyboard on iPhones. Sure. And now you can replace your keyboard because Apple decided to let you in. And the truth is you could put that button. If Apple said, hey, we're going to let you put buttons on music.
1: And, and they even offer that for the Apple Music app and the lock screen. They offer a heart.
0: Right. And but what, they
1: put that in. What that heart does. I'm unclear. I'm sure it's saves. It makes a playlist. Like It probably
2: like puts intended. it in a hearted list But or Apple something.
0: keeps an eye on that data. That's not going anywhere else. Yeah.
2: Well, also, it,
0: a third-party programmer did not put that hard in. Apple put that hard sure, in. Sure, yeah. Well, that's the thing. So, like, I guess, so, like, Apple could release something called, like, Favorite Kit, and it would be a piece of, you could be like, okay, this app supports Favorite Kit, meaning that when you're in lock screen, you can hit a heart, and it would then make some API call somewhere and yeah. say, make this a favorite. Apple
2: historically yeah, has, has okay. watched these patterns take hold and seen sort of these movements of like you know hey we want this feature it's clear that this is the way
0: to go and then they'll sort of bless it and let it in maybe we should build that though if we can can you access the lock screen when you are programming an app
1: no I mean, you can access it if you're playing music you you get the actions back if like music's yeah. been paused. there's like a
2: handful right? of there's actions like four, right? five. but like
0: spotify yeah. has a pause button right
1: that's a built-in construct it's not unique to spotify yeah
0: Okay, so if there was some button that passes through from lock, you could make it the favorite button? Yes. Or maybe we should make favorite kit at and File a you
1: know. radar, Apple feature requester. Sure.
0: Yeah, okay. All right, so...
1: But I, I feel like going back to the UX discussion, I feel like uh, the biggest lessons that I've kind of come to absorb as an iOS developer, whether I like them or not, I feel like there are like three main principles that I always bring to the other designers or product people that I'm working with. And that is like, number one, users don't read. They don't read.
0: They don't read anything. They
1: don't read instructions. They don't read dialogues. They just want to do the thing. They just want to do the thing.
0: What about those little things beforehand where it's just like, here's how to use this app. And don't. No. Don't Next, bo- no. immediately. Yeah. Nobody.
1: Okay. Never. I mean, like, with I'm actually, I'm speaking from, like, a very realistic point of view. This is, like, pretty real talk as an iOS developer. But, yeah, users don't read.
0: Okay. The experience of the first time you open an app, the experience is the app experience. Don't pretend that you're ever going to be able to get someone to be like, yeah. go up to the top right with nope. a double swipe in order nope. to. Okay. Rule number nope. two,
1: don't do double swipe things. Support gestures that users would naturally do, which is tap, swipe, or maybe pinch to zoom. But okay. that's it. Everything else is very confusing. Yeah, like
2: hold and double tap swipe or double. Yeah. Well, everybody got really triple in... swipe. I love Slacks triple swipe. Do you that's, know about this? Yeah.
1: A five point finger punch. I don't know. You know, it's. I
2: discovered this like two weeks ago. Well, remember?
0: Also, they got really into shaking, like the iPad Sha- early day. That was a bad one. Shaking Everyone's on like, it. oh yeah, support shaking. Yeah, because you could like shake it. To do what? It would just register the shake. So a lot of times people like play a little vibration or it would make a noise. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then number three is give the user a chance to navigate. Okay. Uh, When apps don't have either a bottom tab bar to kind of control where they are in the app or they don't offer a back button, users are very uncomfortable. Yeah. They feel stupid using the app because they don't know where they are. Um, So I just – I always bring that back. And obviously like because – Apple is so open-ended and there's just almost literally anything possible because there's so many uh, animations you can possibly implement and so many transitions between content. The navigation seems to be reinvented a lot of times and it's it's hard to be the developer to say like, you know, this, this is really beautiful. This prototype is, I really like it, but we got to do what users know how to do, unfortunately. And, and that's like a tough discussion to have hmm. with designers and product people.
0: People want to get outside of that
1: box. Yeah. I mean, the natural inclination is like I can do better than the Instagram. I sure. can do better than what Facebook is offering. But the truth is that I've been in a lot of user testing sessions and and users just want to do what they already know how to do and you just have to kind of help them.
2: I mean, the counter argument to that is that then how do you get a chance to innovate and try something new?
1: I mean, you can still try. Yeah. There's still like, you know, a lot of incredible apps that don't offer standard navigation. Facebook Paper is my favorite. Yeah. Not only because it offers this kind of like infinite like conveyor belt of Facebook updates, uh, but it also doesn't have any ads, so I, I thoroughly enjoy it. But it's it's, it's a,
2: still out there.
1: It's still out there. They haven't updated in a very long time. It, it was clearly an experiment, but it was it was a really fun one in UX.
0: What are the other beautiful apps that you pay attention to?
1: Oh, this is a good question. I mean, today everyone's very uh, everyone has a lot of opinions about the Instagram redesign. Okay. Uh, because literally today right as
0: as we're recording this instagram has come out with a new redesign new logo everyone's excited
1: i think it's fine i think you know their nav is now just flat and black and white Uh, the the tab bars are still there all the content is still there it just got a nice flat skin and it makes it even easier to ignore the words Mm -hmm. which is great
0: the camera went away oh no camera anymore well the
1: logo
2: used to be a camera Oh, right now it's which most 11 year olds don't know what that is
0: True. True, that's fair. It's just this weird thing. So they got rid of it. You know, it's interesting talking to you because you start as a back-end developer, you move into iOS, and now an enormous amount of your attention is to design.
1: Yes. And this, I could have never expected this in a thousand years. And the transition was not immediate, and it was very bumpy, I would say. But uh, when you're the only iOS developer, you have to speak on behalf of what's right for the user and what Apple wants you to do. So you have to memorize the human interface guidelines. You have to really pay attention to what people, not just like your best users, not just your active users, but the Open Zero users and what they're doing. And I asked both of you before I came in where you live. Uh, Paul, I know you live in Brooklyn. And now, Rich, I also know that you live in Brooklyn. And I asked you what trains you take. What do you do in the morning on the trains? Like, what do you do with your mind? Um, (laughs) I've taken the train with you
2: thousands of times. I usually read.
1: Read? How do you read? On my phone. On your phone? Yeah. What app do you use to read on your phone?
2: Well, I'm underground. Exactly. So uh, the New York Times app, which will go offline nicely, mm-hmm. and
0: Readability, which will also also go offline nicely. Great.
2: So essentially a read later app
0: and the New York Times.
1: And what do you do, Paul?
0: I have a different kind of commute. When I'm on the... Do you care if I'm on the train or the express bus?
1: I want to hear both.
0: So on the train, I read usually on the Kindle. Okay. And I listen to music on Spotify.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Kindle, uh, not the device. on the Kindle app on my iPhone. Okay. So okay. he's reading on his phone. Okay. And then every now and then I will watch a movie. A movie? On my phone. Great. And every now and then uh, I'll be into some game. Usually like twice a year. I'll get into like some dumb game. And then um, if I'm on the express bus, it's pretty much the same, except I am online. So Twitter starts to creep back in. Mm
1: -hmm. So let me ask a related question. Do you do the same thing on your commute, in your morning commute, as you do in your evening commute on your phone? Pretty
0: much, but I'm more likely to tweet in the morning. Rich? Uh, Pretty much the same.
1: Okay.
2: I should just try to like take a deep breath, I feel like, but you just don't. You just keep eating shit. I mean, it's worth noting we are the like crowded urban city with a big transit system. We're the exception. Most people are driving...
1: Yeah. And that's exactly it. As an iOS developer in this city who, you know, takes the great equalizer to work yep. every day, I'm yep. watching people use these devices that I work on with a different part of my brain yep. all day. So I really have to, it's like a great context reset. Yep. I have to really think about what people are actually doing. And if I, I just kind of like observe people this morning and in a group of 12 people on our train headed downtown, seven of them had their phones out. Yeah. Half of them were iPhone, you know, half of Android. Three of those seven were playing Candy Crush or a Candy Crush spinoff. Like this is yeah. these are real numbers.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> just, no, no, no. I saw I mean there was a point where it was just bejeweled. Just only bejeweled exactly. all the subways. Exactly.
1: Or or that
2: it's a game type. It's the one where they're like the guy is endlessly running. Yeah. And they're yeah. turning corners all the time. Temple run kind of thing. Yeah. But there's a million variations of it now and, and all that. Jumping well, over trains. Jumping over
0: trains, yeah. Natalie, what do you do with your phone aside from spying on people all the time when you're on the train? Yeah,
1: I try actively to only listen to my headphones and zone out one day a week. Huh. And I actively try to observe the rest of the days. Huh. But when I'm not observing like a creep, I play Sudoku in the morning and then I'll usually read in the afternoon on the way back.
0: Are you spying specifically for iOS understanding or general human observation? I
1: I want to know what kinds of apps people are using offline because that is a different problem set than the great majority of things that I work on.
0: Do you ever just approach people directly and ask them what's up?
1: Sometimes. Sometimes I'll ask them what they're reading. Uh Usually I can see if they're like, you know, squinting at a morning Lenny letter Right,
0: right, right. That's Lena Dunham's newsletter, right? Exactly. Yeah, okay.
1: A lot of people are just catching up on their their like kind of for fun newsletter subscriptions in the morning.
0: So you're you're observing tremendous newsletter penetration in New York City subways.
1: I am such a snoop in the mornings. The mm. L train is so crowded. How can I not? You know, it's right in front of me.
0: I see an enormous amount of activity on various screens. That's true. You just can't help it in New York City.
1: Yeah. So in my day job, I'm literally, you know, solving, you know, data animation, you know, image related bugs that come in and I'm doing like very technical code related work. But in my commute to and from every day, I'm just kind of stepping back and I'm watching the world around me and thinking like, I have to pay attention. I have to remember how people are actually using the things that I work on to be good at this.
0: It's a life. See, I think this is really good for people to hear because you get up and you're living this. You're looking at what people are up to on the train, and it's in the context of this job. Well, I think what's even more interesting is if if we would have skipped over your, your resume and
2: you started describing what you think about and what you worry about, I wouldn't have guessed engineer. I actually would have guessed... Design. I didn't think today's podcast was going to be about this. I thought it was going to be more about different libraries that you love.
1: That's the kind of most embarrassing, surprising part about becoming an iOS developer is that they call it iOS developer, but really you're an iOS product person. You have to know the whole package. You have to understand what people are going through when they use this product. You have to kind of understand all the design problems, all the user experience problems, all the data problems, all of the you know past versions of iOS problems, all of... Apple's intentions going forward. You just have to have a lot on your shoulders, and it's kind of it's kind of a lot, you know? And I run a meetup uh, in the city called Cocoa Heads, and uh, it's so supportive, and it has a lot of, like, Mac developer veterans who've been doing this for many years, and they have, like, very strong opinions and a very long history with Apple. You know, they use this group not because we're sharing technical secrets, but it's because it's almost like a support group. We need to help each other make better software there's and understand so what much, Apple wants us to do.
0: There's just so much to know.
1: There's too much to know.
0: So... If I wanted to go to that meetup, what do I do?
1: Um, check out CocoaHeadsNYC.org okay, for that's, more details. Okay, that's
0: the way to get the information? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is really interesting to me, right? Because here you are, you're a young person, you go to school in Baltimore, mm-hmm. and you major in computer, computer science. Okay, to, and you're learning C. I'm learning what, C. What made you choose comp sci?
1: Uh, my dad was a double E PhD, and so he could just do everything.
0: Anything with, like, technology?
1: He rewired the basement. He, you know, refurbished a Corvette. He, the man is unstoppable. He was incredible inspiration.
0: So you're like, um, that's cool. I, I like to...
1: I want to have... do everything. Okay. And so I thought computer science is the key to that. So I did that, and I went to uh, UMBC, and I was in a uh, scholarship program for women in technology.
0: Oh, right. And, oh, uh, we should point out that you're a woman.
1: Hey, we've been,
0: we've been leaving that mostly alone for this conversation. You couldn't tell, Uh, (laughs) you know, but we were, we were talking a little bit and you said, you know, I'm kind of post-women in technology.
1: Yeah. So in my college program, I was surrounded by women majoring in computer science, electrical engineering, information systems. And we were coding in the dorm together, you know, kind of whiteboarding algorithms all the time. And this was just very common for me. That sounds so, great. It was heaven. And I also was an, I founded a sorority for women in technical studies, math, science, engineering. So it was just nerd heaven. And normal. Normal nerd heaven. You're like
0: 19. This just is like, let's oh, go. Oh, it's like
1: breathing. And yeah. so, so you know, in the startup scene where it, it's it's mostly men and, and they're kind of uncomfortable with me there, it doesn't go both ways. Uh, I'm comfortable with you because I'm a nerd. Like, let's get this over with. Kind are you of thing. still
0: Are you still in touch? Is that a community? That, yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. A lot of them stayed in the Baltimore area because the jobs there are great.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So you are a computer scientist. And then you you sort of went into kind of back-end-oriented work because that that made sense? Or like what happened next?
1: Oh, a lot happened next. I I went to an internship at Microsoft um, and then I went to a graduate program briefly uh... (laughs) – For the Department of Defense, and then I dropped out. That was in California, and I found a job on Craigslist in New York City, and I moved on a whim and took a job with uh, my old boss, David Jacobs.
0: Wow, it's good to be in your twenties, isn't it? It was awesome. Yeah, i was really. That's sort said, of shrug and like, yeah, why uh, not?
1: Yeah, he was like, let's work on blogging software, and I was like, I don't know what a blog
0: is. That's great. That's mm-hmm. great. <laughs> David David's a good friend of ours, and yeah, runs really a company cool. called Twenty Nine Street Publishing. Yes. And you worked with him for quite a while.
1: Very long time. Great guy.
0: And then migrated your skills onto iOS. Yeah. And now you are here. And now I'm here. Well, thank you for coming. This was great. Do people need to know anything that we didn't hit?
1: Uh, Live life in airplane mode.
0: Very good. We'll come back anytime. Come visit us. If you ever need to use our space for any event, you know what to do.
1: Thank you. That'd be great. Is that
0: your Twitter profile?
1: What? What?
2: Live
0: life in airplane mode. That sounds
2: like a Twitter profile.
1: No, I was going to say low battery mode, but not everyone's on iOS 9. <laughs>
2: <laughs> life advice must wait until
0: iOS 9 is well propagated. <laughs> Natalie Pedrazik, thank you. Thank what, you. Guys. Oh, what's your thank Twitter you Natalie.
1: handle? Natalie Poe.
0: Natalie Poe. P O. Mm-hmm. All right. People should follow you. Cool. Thank you, Natalie. Thank Thanks. you. Ah. You know, Rich, I asked for Natalie's Twitter handle, but I should have asked for her GitHub handle. It turns out it's the same. It's Natalie. I Palmer. would have guessed it would be the same. So, she so here is, we are. She is a busy person.
2: Yes. She is up to stuff. Yes. Yes.
0: I also learned actually quite a bit about the gestalt of iOS programming which is big and complicated. And and a struggle, like sort of a just a collective you have to deal with this enormous monolithic organization. It's a lot, man. But it it seems like what's interesting listening and to And you her, only
2: get to talk to daddy one week a year.
0: I know, it feels like if kind only of visitation the, rights are these. It's not good. That part's not good, but it's it's so tricky, right? What is interesting listening to her is how but she feels that Apple is very strongly in the interest of the user, and that it's her job to work with them to like get that software into people's hands. I think like that, that
2: is the culture that they've created. That's the mission, right? Yeah. And
0: that's that's really interesting. Like that yeah. is probably one of the unbelievable keys to their success. They take a back end programmer, give them the keys to this, uh, like the constrained keys to the kingdom, and then say. Okay, go forth and make something really good along these lines. And care about
2: these things. Yeah.
0: They they broaden what you need to do. Yes. All right, so we should tell everyone that this is Track Changes. Yeah. I'm Paul Ford. Rich Ziotti. We're the co-founders of Postlight, a nice agency that would love to talk to you about... Just a warm, friendly place. We build iOS apps. We build all apps. Yeah, we build Android, we build backend, we build web apps, we do all that stuff so
2: contact at
0: postlight.com there we go have a great week paul talk to you next week and actually probably in the next two minutes as we walk back to the office yes bye bye